chapter 10. I'm going to start reading at verse 34. This is that phenomenal moment in the book of Acts where the gospel officially goes forward from just Jews now to include Gentiles. This is the first sermon preached by Peter, by anyone uh, up to this point really, to anyone who was a Gentile. And so that's what you have going on here. And I want you to notice the gospel as it's preached, as he proclaims it in verse 34 through 43, notice the content, because sometimes we, we don't have a full content when we think of gospel. And then, uh, then we'll move from there to Ecclesiastes. So Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning and from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets bear witness. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Notice how the day of judgment is part of the good news because the salvation of God is the remedy for the people who believe in Jesus on the day of judgment. But notice the day of judgment is part of the gospel. And now we turn to Ecclesiastes Chapter 11, verse 9, it's page 559 in your Bibles, your blue Bibles. And we're just finishing today the series we've been doing in Ecclesiastes, from abated abated to abiding. I'm going to pick up at verse 9 of chapter 11. We'll just read all the way to the end of chapter 12. Rejoice, rejoice, O young men, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dim and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets, 
before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity besides being wise. The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, whether with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What I read to you from the book of Acts and from Ecclesiastes is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Spirit of the living God, who hovered over the formless and void creation and brought forth that which was very good and hovered over the emptiness of Mary's womb to bring forth the new creation. Come and hover over our hearts and our minds, bringing forth renewed hearts and deep wisdom for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are in the back of the worship guide with all the points there and some quotations for you. And some space to write notes. If you are visiting, you may feel like you're coming in uh, almost literally at the end of a conversation. And you're right. We've been doing a series through Ecclesiastes. And today is the final day. From abated to abiding. If you're interested after today, if you're interested in listening to the previous sermons, you can go to heritagepca.org. Go to the media button. Click on that. And it will pull up down there all these uh, audio links, audio file links on sermon audio. And you can go back and start seeing all the Ecclesiastes sermons. And there's only, this will be eight. There's eight of them. This is the eighth one. My friends, if you've ever done any kind of public speaking, or if you have ever written a book, or if you've ever completed a term paper, you know that conclusions are probably the hardest part of the whole deal. They are hard to come by. I often put the analogy this way, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to land that plane, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's hard to bring the, the boat into the dock, right? There's fog, there's clouds, there's confusion, whatever. So it's a hard deal. I know it is. I remember being in a public speaking class in college when I was, I don't remember how old I was, and I didn't want to stop. <laughs> and the teacher, it made me stop. The instructor made me stop, but I wasn't done. You're done. 66. (laughs) It was horrible. It's hard sometimes to come to a conclusion. It's difficult to figure out how to end this thing or that thing. But conclusions are very helpful in in bringing the speaker or bringing the writer to summarize their main point. And that's exactly what Solomon is doing here. In chapter 11, verse 9, through the end of chapter 12, he is bringing it all home. His plane is landing, his boat is docking. He is bringing it together together. Just in case you miss any of it, he's going to bring it out so it's very, very clear to you. So notice first off, in verse chapter 11, verse 9, through chapter 12, verse 8, Solomon's whole point is rejoice. Now, we're going to break this down, but it's rejoice. 
finally Solomon has come to his closing points. In case we've missed what he was up to, where he was going, or to whom he was speaking at all, he brings it out now. Notice, now it becomes clear he was talking to his son, more than likely Rehoboam. Rejoice, O young man. He keeps coming back to this. All of this was originally written as a father to his son. Rejoice, O young man. Right? What father, what mother doesn't say to their child, their adult son who's just left the house, look, before you go, let me give you three lessons I learned in life so you don't screw up. Right? What parent doesn't do that? And that's what Solomon is doing. You can see that there. Notice that the preacher then gives a six-part verdict. A six-part verdict, if you want to call it that. And the very first one in verse 9 is rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in the health you have. Rejoice in the energy you exhibit. Rejoice in the time you have been given. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your, of your youth. Rejoice in it. But then secondly, walk. It's also in verse 9. Walk. Usually walk is the description used for a way of life, and that's kind of right here. Experience life, Solomon says. Experience life. Experience the freshness, the fullness, the beauties and the benefits all around you. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. I love the way he puts it because when I think of little kids, and I think of our four when they were all little kids, and some of you probably had the same experience, it was impossible to take a short walk. You know what I mean? When you have little kids, it's impossible to take a short walk, especially if they're waddling or toddling or, or walking, right? Because what do they want to do? Right? They look at everything. Right? You pass by a flower bed with Indian blankets. They stop. Breaks on. Wow, wah, wah, wah. And then they go up and they want to taste it and eat it and smell it and look at it and pull the petals off. Because for them, it's all spectacular, new. Got it? I think sometimes when we get older, we forget how amazing things are. I mean, I would encourage you, when you walk out the church building today, look at the flowers that have been planted right out in the front there in those two pots. Just spend a moment and look at them. They're gorgeous. And that's what Solomon is reminding his son about. Walk in this experience, experience life, the freshness, the fullness, the beauties, the benefits all around you. I tell parents a lot when I see them frustrated with their younger kids do not wish this time away. I know it's frustrating, trust me. I know it's frustrating. Don't wish it away because you ain't ever going to get it back. And you'll never be able to go back and live those moments. Enjoy it while you have it. That's what Solomon is saying here. And so walk, experience life, the freshness, the beauties and benefits all around you. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But no, this is also in verse 9, no, K-N-O-W. Unlike your compatriots, unlike your counterparts, unlike your fellow countrymen, remember your day is coming. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now some people hear that and they break out in hives, and I'm sorry that if that's anyone here. But that's a great warning. Anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah. When you're out walking and you want to look over the edge, what is it that keeps you from falling over the edge in most places? Yeah, fence or a guardrail, right? So that's why he puts that there, to keep his son from falling over the edge in the enjoyment to where the enjoyment rules him and becomes dominating. Just remember, 
we will all stand before the day of God in judgment. That's not a bad thing. That's a great reminder. There's an accountability. That's the point of it. So, no, in all of this enjoyment, no, that, the, that uh, for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. There's an accounting. Then fourth and fifth, he says in verse 10, remove and put away. The things he says to remove and put away are close to each other, but it's two different things here. Remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Never forget in Ecclesiastes, when he says vanity, he's not saying meaningless, futile. It may feel like that, but that's not what he's saying. You heard it in the call to worship from Psalm 144, life is brief. You hear it in James, when he says, what is your life? You're like a vapor, vapor, think vapor, vapor. You're here today, gone tomorrow. When he says it's vanity, he means vaporous, it's very transitory. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So you're going to have loads of reasons to be puzzled. You're going to have loads of reasons to be perplexed. You're going to have loads of reasons to be plagued by your, in your life. And so on, on top of all those things, you will run into reasons to grieve. Therefore, do not add vexation to your heart, for there will be plenty of vexatious moments that will come. You ever met the person that just seems like they're just not satisfied with life and so they want to get into everybody else's business and their drama and then they absorb their drama into their own heart and they come back and they're like, <gasps> it's not their own drama, it's somebody else's drama, but they took it upon themselves. It's like, wow, it's that kind of thing. Solomon says, don't add vex vexation to your heart for there will be plenty of vexatious moments that will come anyways. Don't add to them. Instead, be those who see clearly that the moment you're in is only temporary. That's his point. And the youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Now, that's important news. You're not always going to be a kid. You're not always going to be a teenager. You're not always going to be a 20-something or 30-something or 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever. You're not always going to be there. Have you noticed that none of us have ever yet figured out how to stop the clock? I know, I know some, some, friend, some, some friends who like to say they've been 39 for the last 60 years or something like that, you know. You can't stop the clock. You'll not always be this age. It's coming and it's going fast. And so then he, the last part of his verdict is in chapter 12 and verse 1. Remember. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator, creator now. Get into the practice now of reflexively responding to the good and the bad with, I'm always the created and sustained, and he is always the creator and sustainer. Begin young, begin early, begin often, starting to shape and train your own reflexive responses to good and evil, with that recognition, remember your creator in the days of your youth. I think that's what helps us to quote Martin Luther King, one the, a quote that I gave you a few weeks back. It helps us to grasp what he was after when he said, we must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. If we've begun training our reflexes in good and bad with this recognition, I am only the created and sustained, I am not the creator and sustainer. 
then it helps us in the midst of the finite disappointment to never lose infinite hope. My friends, the bullet train, the bullet train of our life is running at top neck speed. It is. And you will flourish. You will move from abated to abiding by keeping in mind always that you are not limitless. But you are limited. You are not infinite. You are finite. You are not the creator, but the created. I think Kelly Capick in his book that you saw me review this last week, I mentioned in Sunday school class, I love this book, You're Only Human. This is the quotation in your sermon notes. I think he does, he gives us a much needed corrective when he writes these words, and I hope you have it in your notes. You're supposed to. It goes like this. Quote, when my expectations ignore my limits, I am sinning. For I am trying to act as a God rather than as a human, infinite rather than finite. End of quotation. I think that's a solid biblical corrective. So have your head screwed on properly, aware and comfortable with your finitude. That's the idea. And so to drive the stake into the heart of the undead and undying illusions of our personal infinity, and I said that on purpose because our illusions of personal infinity will keep resuscitating, trust me, all the way through life you will do that, right? So to try to help hammer the stake into those undying and undead illusions of of our personal infinity, notice that the the preacher then pictures us as a house. He pictures us as a house that's being boarded up and mothballed. He's picturing us as a homestead that's left to itself and slowly begins to clutter up and winds down. And then he takes that picture from verse 2 to verse about verse 8. He takes that picture and he expands it into other picture scenes like trees and grasshoppers and shattered pitchers and so forth. The set of examples that he uses here as illustrations and pictures, especially the part about the deserted house crumbling in on itself, came home to me years ago when I had to travel numerous times from Kerrville, Texas to Mason City, Texas. I was, uh, it was the last half of my Air Force career as part of, uh, I was in recruiting, and so I had to go to Mason City from Kerrville, Texas to go to Mason City, and it's all rule all country. And then I'd leave Mason City and go back to Kerrville. And one day I started noticing all these old abandoned farmhouses on these homesteads. And the further, the, the closer I was to Mason, the, the more together those houses were. They just looked like they were abandoned. That's it. Right? No paint, but everything's fine. Shingles are missing here and there, but everything's fine. But the further I got away from Mason City, the more I began to notice that they were all falling in. Right? So every time I go past another house, it was like something else had fallen in on this house. Like the roof had fallen in over here. And then I'd go further on, a couple miles down the road, and here was another abandoned house that had been abandoned longer, and now the whole roof had caved in. And then I went a few miles further, and there was another house, and it was, had been abandoned even longer, and now I noticed that the walls were caved in. And then finally, the, the, the one that struck me was the last one, where I go out, one of these houses has been abandoned for decades, and there's nothing left but stone chimneys. 
right? There's a mound, a little slight mound where there's some debris there, grass growing over it, and there's a chimney. And it all hit me one day. Every one of those homes, there was a mama in that house, and she screamed at the kids once. Wipe off your muddy feet, y'all. You ain't barbarians. I didn't raise no hicks. You get in this house with clean shoes. And moms, you should say those things to your kids, by the way. And I was thinking, what would that mom say now if she saw her house? And that's when it hit. That's a picture of our lives. So I see why Solomon brings this up and uses that as a, as a great illustration. We're all decaying houses. Some of you feel, feel it more than others right at this moment, but that's okay. We're all decaying houses, as it were. Some of us, we can't see out the windows unless somebody gives us new glass. You know what I'm saying? Hearing is a problem, and so some things startle us that didn't used to, and other things we can't hear. Probably because I used to listen to ACDC and Black Sabbath as a teenager, but that's beside the point. Right? Your, your house is falling in. You get it. I don't need to go down any further than that. And so, my friends, that's where he's going. You know that because when you get to verse 5 and verse 7, he says this, because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the street and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Where Solomon is taking his young reader, probably his son Roboam, is into the path of wisdom and what he's laid out is eight-tenths of the way into this wisdom. To remember your maker and to remember your mortality. That is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. And to emphasize that, he gives us three before statements in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 8. Three before statements. Remember your maker and your mortality before grief strikes. Verse 1. Remember your maker and your mortality before your lights go out. Verse 2. Remember your maker and your mortality before uh, before your hold on life is severed. Verse 8 like a silver cord that snaps. Remember your maker and remember your mortality before those things happen. So you're prepared when they do happen. Therefore, all of this is about rejoicing. Rejoicing in the life that God has given you now. Do you know how many people have you run across, I know there's been several I've run across, who wish away this life because they wanted that life over there. Rejoice in the life you've been given now while you have it. You're not entitled to it. It's the gift of God. Enjoy what you can. Enjoy the life that God has given you and all that he has invested you with presently. And then the preacher tells us how he came upon these observations and it was by reckoning. And this is verses 9 through 12. I'm using the word reckoning like Addition, adding, pulling things together, reckoning. Verses 9 through 12 of chapter 12. It's at this junction that Solomon winds things up by pointing out first, in verse 9, that his words are the, wor- are the fruit of hard thinking. Notice how he puts it. Besides being wise, a preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. He's talking about this book. And then verse 10, his words are also from the result of extensive searching. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight. Now, let's just stop a moment. Solomon's calling Ecclesiastes words of delight. Think about that. Have you delighted in this book? 
Most of us haven't, right? So the problem is us. Because there's really good news all the way through this book to bring us to delight. These are words of delight. And so he came by these by searching, his extensive searching, sought to find words of delight. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. They're also words of truth. These are not stream of consciousness thoughts like so many social media posts in our day that have almost no thought to them. There's been time, there's been care, there's been deep detective work poured into this manuscript we call Ecclesiastes. But further, he reckons that his words will be uncomfortable on the one hand, he knows that, but also they will be securing because these are words of delight, these are good words, and surprisingly, they are the words of one shepherd. Notice how he ends verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by who? Are you looking in your Bible? One shepherd, one shepherd. They're given by one shepherd. The shepherd who supplies us so that we will not want. The shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures. The shepherd who leads us beside still waters. The shepherd who restores our souls. The shepherd who leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that one shepherd is with us. That's the author of these words. I don't know about you, but that lifts this manuscript out of all of our 21st century sense of skepticism and and cynicism. And it says, oh, this is Jesus speaking through Solomon. That's a world of difference. No wonder Solomon, you called him the words of delight. I'm getting excited. Right? Okay. Therefore, don't be, notice what he goes on to say then when you get to verse 12, therefore, don't get hoodwinked or bamboozled by the shysters or the talk show gurus. He didn't say talk show gurus, but you get the point. Because notice what he says, verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Beware of anything beyond these words. Because, you know, if you didn't know this, there's a never-ending supply of books out there, and there's lots of study out there that wearies the flesh. Beware of anything beyond these. There's lots of people wanting to tell you other things. There's lots of people writing other things that go against all of this. These are the words of the one shepherd. Beware. Beware. The talk show hosts and the shifters and all those things. Beware of anything beyond these. And so the preacher's learned observations guided by the one shepherd bring him then to wrap up his work. And it's verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. It's at this point we've been, if we've been awake, if we've been paying attention, that when we get to verse 13 to 14, we have kind of an aha moment. Oh, why, this is where Solomon was heading all along. Why, you know, now that I think about verse 13 to verse 14, sure, I see it now. He's mentioned every one of these things in verse 13 and 14. He's mentioned every one of these things in these two verses in multiple ways all the way through Ecclesiastes. This is the way of the good life in the face of the banality, of the brevity, 
of the fecklessness and of the frumpishness of our world. This is the way of the good life. This is how you move from abated to abiding. These two verses are the interpretive lens of the whole book. If you come up with another conclusion of Ecclesiastes... And verses, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 aren't the driving force of that interpretation. You are wrong. <laughs> that wasn't very nice. But you are. Because verse 13 to 14 are what the book is about. So you need to go back and reassess how you heard Ecclesiastes if you came out somewhere else. But notice this. Notice the, the, what's here. There's actually good news in verse 13 and 14. Great news in these two verses. Now maybe it's not what you might think of as gospel good news kind of good news. But it's good news nonetheless. Think of it. Of all the important things it carries with it, it the day this, the, these verses... And the day of judgment, it certainly means, as he says, we're going to have all of our things, all of our life is going to be held to account of all the things that it means. It certainly means that no matter how meaningless you may think your tasks are, no matter how empty you may think your vocation is, no matter how pointless you may think wiping those runny noses and cleaning those messy diapers is, no matter how hollow you may think your act of kindness was, no matter how insignificant it was for you to have maybe have stopped and helped that, that old man or old gal to change their flat tire, no matter how irrelevant you felt studying hard at school was, no matter how trivial you conceive paying your taxes may be. Verse 13 to 14 tell you, you know what? It's not meaningless and it's not hollow to God. It's not meaningless and not hollow to God. He not only has given you all of these gifts, he takes them seriously, and that's good news. Who hasn't had moments when you stopped and said, I wonder if I'm doing anything worthwhile? Who hasn't had moments, sometimes long seasons, I'm speaking some autobiographical stuff here. When you just feel like everything I've done has been fruitless and useless. And Solomon breaks in with this statement. And you realize, oh, it's not useless to God. It's not senseless and meaningless to God. It adds so much important value to it. Here's how Derek Kidner puts it in his commentary. And I believe this is in your sermon notes too talking about verse 13 and 14. It kills complacency to know that nothing goes unnoticed and unassisted. Not even the things that we disguise from ourselves. But at the same time, it transforms life. If God cares as much as this, then nothing can be pointless. It is a very different thing to be under a master to whom the worker and the work both matter deeply and whose judgment is unerring. I love that last statement. It is a completely different thing to be under a master 
to whom the worker and the work both matter deeply and whose judgment is unerring. Now, your boss may have said, you're a loser. I had a boss tell me that. I actually had more than one. And then we're usually cuss words with him. That's beside the point. You're a, you're a loser. And then, no. Well, God knows, actually, the truth. The value that adds to who you are and what you're doing. So there's really good news here. You may not think it's gospel good news, but there is good news. Oh, but there actually is gospel good news here. That day of judgment Solomon brings up here will be under the watchful eye, the judicial supervision, and before the throne of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, you heard it in Acts 10. The day of judgment is part of the gospel proclamation. And God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus, the Son of God, who became one of us, Jesus, the Son of God, who bore injustice upon his own shoulders. Jesus, the Son of God, who received the slicing lashes of evil and unrighteousness across his back. Jesus, the Son of God, who was strung up by the religious and regal immorality. Jesus, the Son of God, this Jesus, the most just man, treated like he was the most unjust. This Jesus who knew no sin but became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. This Jesus is the one bringing every deed into judgment, including every secret thing. And you who have come to remember your creator in the days of your youth or in the days of your graying, thinning hair, whatever it is, whatever it was, will stand on that day Because that very judge will declare you acquitted and will announce to all all that you are the very ones he has died for. Did you hear that? Did, Did anybody hear that? I see a couple heads nodding. Think about it. There's gospel right there changes the way you see and process everything. I love the way that Paul puts it when he's talking about communion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he tells us, he's talking about judgment in 1 Corinthians 11 and the Lord's Supper. He says, but we are judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, and right there, lots of Weak knees begin to wobble, right? Oh, right? But listen to what he says. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. We're disciplined. Well, why? So that we, you may not be condemned. That you may not be condemned along with the world. Did you hear that? The day of judgment is... But Solomon's talking about, yeah, it's going to be a little bit unnerving, I would imagine. I mean, let's just imagine John in Revelation 1 when he saw Jesus. He wasn't saying, yo, Jesus, high five, bro. Did, did John do that? 
No, he fell on his face. We'll be falling on a lot of faces, right? We'll all be falling down. So it's going to be pretty traumatic. But for his people, the ones that he died for, it is not going to be condemnation, damnation, doom nation. It's going to be discipline, but it's also going to be acquittal. It's going to be the day when all here, these are the ones that I died for. These are the ones. That's how you hear it when you get to the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should should, uh, uh, not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then later on in John 3, the Father loves his Son and has given all things into his hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he that does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. And so always remember, there's good news, but with good news comes what? Bad news. What's good news for some is bad news for others. If you have never come to Christ, if you have never reckoned with the fact that you will be judged, and when you hear that, it terrifies you, because you know what you've done in secret. You know what you've done behind closed doors. You know the things that you've done. And you've not sought God. And you've not sought His way of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And you're terrified of that day. This is your moment. You're hearing about the way out. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I call upon you. I invite you. I beckon you. Call on the name of the Lord. And so to be saved. Let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we thank you for Ecclesiastes. As, my, as our friend Bill Price used to say in his book, Ecclesiastes is paint stripper for the soul. And our, a lot of our souls have a lot of paint and varnish. And they needed to be stripped. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would be a people who are always rejoicing in you even in the bad days and the good days, remembering that you're the creator and sustainer and we are always the created and sustained. Help us to rejoice in knowing that the day of judgment is not necessarily really a bad thing for your people. It reminds us of good things and it reminds us of Jesus himself who will be there, who will be that judge in that day. And so, Lord, we pray for any who have been here through the series, maybe who have just here once now, or maybe coming through a live stream or sermon audio, we pray if they've never come to you, we pray that you would draw them to you and they would come running. And they would embrace you, Lord Jesus, as you are freely offered in the gospel, receiving and resting upon you alone for salvation. All this we ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.